Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Alan Winson, and this is Hunker Down Podcast, where I talk with actors and musicians whose careers have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Contact me at UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com with questions and comments. This is the second part of my conversation with American violinist Mark Kaplan. In part one, we talked about his early training and career and his special relationship with his violin, a Stradivarius named Marchesa. In this part of our conversation, we talked about his work in chamber music and listened to a couple pieces that he did, one by Fred Lairdahl and the other by Paul Schoenfeld. We ended our conversation talking about the future of high-end classical concerts in a post-pandemic world. You were with the Golub-Kaplan Car Trio. Uh, Now you're with the Weiss-Kaplan Stumpf Trio. Uh, what's the difference between playing before a, a great orchestra and playing in a, uh, a chamber situation? What is the difference? Well, almost nothing about it is the same. Okay. Except that you're playing great music. I only want to play great music, so I try to reserve, reserve my time for that. Um, it's a different experience altogether. When you're playing as a soloist with the orchestra, Okay, you're in some sense you're playing a gigantic chamber work, but you don't have nearly enough time to rehearse it as if it was a gigantic chamber work. So you're dealing with a kind of much more improvised situation. You have a relationship with the conductor. You may have a kind of musical relationship with particular instrumentalists in the orchestra, especially wind players who may have important solos, uh, occasionally the concertmaster, um, but but most most often it's wind players. You have a relationship with the string sections as sections, um, but mostly you're trying to forge some kind of musical experience out of very little rehearsal time, and so you have to know exactly what you want to do, and you have to also be able to improvise something quite different if if that's not what the orchestra is doing and if and if that's not what the conductor is doing and maybe the conductor has something that that actually um, transforms what you're doing for example i I played many times with the great conductor no longer alive uh, Klaus Tenstedt. and w- 
one of the first times I played, actually the first time I played with him, was with the Cleveland Orchestra doing Beethoven's Concerto. And I was quite young then. And he was not a household name, which he later became. So I didn't really know who he was very much. Um, he was living in East Germany at the time. And so he was, that was his musical world, was East Germany and the Eastern Bloc and Soviet Union. Um, so I didn't really know who he was. I was nervous going to rehearsal because Beethoven is, you know, kind of the the, the pinnacle of of violin concertos, and and I was young and and I had played once before with the Cleveland Orchestra or twice, but but I wasn't like a regular there, and so with the Beethoven concerto, the the orchestra has to start for about I don't know like three and a half or four minutes before you play anything, and uh, and. And that time, the conductor is kind of determining a lot of the course of that concerto. Um, there's a famous story about Yasha Heifetz, who went to a rehearsal, and he started about, you know, 20 seconds too soon at, with a famous conductor. And the conductor stopped and looked at him, and Heifetz said, at my tempo, that's when I come in. <laughs> but that was Heifetz, and it was a different time, and, and nobody would dream of doing anything like that. So anyway, I was a little nervous. How is this conductor going to play the opening? And Tenstedt, who was not a t typical conductor, gave a kind of amorphous upbeat, and I had no idea what he was going to do. Was he going to conduct this in two, in four? What was it going to be? And And I thought... Oy vey, this is going to be disaster. And I didn't want to even look. And then he did that tutti, and it was so beautiful and so riveting that I didn't even want to play. I thought, what is there that I can add to this? And it really felt like this was there there was a, a depth there that I didn't know how to approach, how to contribute to it. Um, but I did play, and I found that actually there was so much I could learn from what he was doing and what he had done, and that it it transformed the piece for me. And in order to do that, of course, I had to be very, very well prepared. I had to know exactly what I wanted to do, but I also had to be open to being able to do something um, somewhat different. Not like diametrically opposed, but but different. Yeah, you can't do that unless you are prepared. And that's true about mm -hmm. many, many things that we do. You go mm -hmm. prepared, and then you can change it. Right. Now, there is one aspect of chamber music which is the same which is a very important thing that I talk to my students a lot about because my students often will have a quartet which is four great players and they start playing and they play very, very well and then they like implode. They can't deal with each other. And usually it's because there's too much ego and they're trying to... Everyone wants to do something his or her way. Um, and 
And I tell them that that's not how it works, that you have to have respect for the people you're playing with, and that if you think something or another, and the cellist thinks something different, then if you win, and the quartet ends up doing it your way, then you get some kind of satisfaction. You get to realize what you wanted to do. But actually, you haven't learned anything, and the cellist has learned something. And you have a chance to grow from that, and the cellist doesn't. So, no, I said the other way around. The cellist can learn, and you don't have a chance. That's right, because it's something you already know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so basically, when you do something that's not your way in the chamber group, then, then you're the winner. Yeah. My father used to say, you know, make sure to listen to the other guy because then you know what he's saying and you know what you were going to say. So just listen. Um, So that's a very, very important part of of chamber music. Chamber music you can rehearse. And um, my first trio was very interesting because we didn't rehearse very much. This is the Golub-Kaplan-Carr trio. Yeah. And David Golub lived in, in, in Milano. And Colin Carr lived outside of Oxford in England, and I lived in New York. And we would get together and maybe the day before a concert and rehearse. Um, but we didn't even rehearse that much then. And that was a pattern we developed because our very first concert, we re- rehearsed a lot, and it didn't sound very good. And then after that, we went on a tour of Sicily where there were lots of concerts very close together, and we didn't rehearse very much at all, and we even would start substituting, oh, let's play a different piece. And we played great, and we decided, okay, we can communicate much better with just the music. And so we did rehearse when we had to, but mostly the rehearsals had very little talking. We would play, and we would play again, and and we would learn also a lot on stage. And that was great. It was wonderful. Um, and it was a very spontaneous experience. David Golub was so inconsiderate as to die. Yeah. And so that he died in 2000, so about 20 years ago now. And so, yeah, 20 years ago. Then he passed away. After that, then I continued playing trios in various formations. Now the trio is actually, I'm really happy with it. It's It's uh, wonderful. Yael is an, is an amazing artist, and Peter Stumpf is a fabulous cellist. And Peter comes from uh, Peter uh, a, an orchestral background as well as a chamber music background, and he also comes from a string quartet background. And string quartets have to rehearse; they rehearse a lot. And so, so now we rehearse more than I ever did before. And and it's a wonderful experience. Are you rehearsing now during the pandemic? Uh, no, Peter's in Bloomington. Okay, okay. One of the interests that you have uh, is new music, uh, and we had talked about that. I just talked with the Composers Concordance, that which does a lot of new music here in the yeah, city. Yeah. Uh, do you know about them? Do you know them? Um, I don't know them personally, but I know about them. For right, sure. right. Um, Gene, Gene Pritzker and uh, Dan Cooper are, are running it now. Is there a piece of uh, new music that uh, we could play and then maybe talk about your interest in new music and what that is? I know uh, mm-hmm. there's one piece, uh, Alerto's uh, 
you had a story about uh, Fred Lairdall as Times Three. I think you said the first movement. Um, yeah, I, well, I, well, the story about that has to do with the ending of this of the movement, um, where um, where the cello plays these like sort of single notes, which are harmonics. Uh, harmonic is is where you don't play the full string length, like you don't play this. You play just a portion of the string length, and um, and the piece. It's a very unusual piece. I, should, I mean, Fred Lauderdale is a is a composer. He's a music theorist as well, and and this is a piece which is which you can obviously see a lot of very intellectualized stuff happening, mathematical stuff. There's stuff that relates clearly to the Fibonacci series. Um, you can see, um, you know, kind of retrogrades of things, and, and the way things are put together is is very, very planned. Um, but all the great music in the world is not just intellectual, and um, and this is no exception. And and it was interesting to us because this is a very difficult piece to play to put together, and and we were playing it for Fred, and he says to Peter at at the last part of the first movement, he says, you know, we need to get a different feeling here. It's got to sound lonely. And um and so, and 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 Peter kind of looked at it like looked at him because he's playing these notes like ah. Eh. Okay, how is that supposed to sound lonely? Um, but, but uh, you know, it's hard to put music into words. And so what Lerdahl was trying to say was something that, that he couldn't really express properly in words. And, um, and then, you know, we, we were able to make it happen. So the, I guess the loneliness is something that, that, uh, that I thought of in connection with, um, with COVID because everybody does experience some loneliness and so maybe the ending of that movement is, is something that can evoke that and, and let's listen now to the um, end of the first movement of Lerdahl's Times 3 uh, with the Weiss Kaplan Stumpf trio and then we'll come back and we'll talk about COVID-19 okay
And that was the most lonely ending of Fred Lairdahl's Times Three, performed by the Weiss Kaplan Stumpf Trio. You had also mentioned that we listened to Schoenfield's four music videos. I'd never heard of it. That, well, for well the- Schoenfeld, yeah, he, he has a... Um, Paul Schoenfeld has, uh, is very well known for a trio uh, called Café Music. And when we were planning um, this recording that we made, we made a, a, a trio recording called An American... Uh, an American tour, and it has premier trios by four American composers. One of the pieces that we thought about for that was was Paul Schoenfeld's, Schoenfeld's four music videos, which at that point we could only get a score for, and we got the score from Paul himself. Um, there was one movement which had a recording available on YouTube done by a different trio which had actually commissioned the work. Um, and But we were very curious about it because he's, a, he's an amazing composer. And and this is a piece that's much more sophisticated than the cafe music. And he sent me the, the score. I mean, dealing with Paul was actually an amazing adventure because he is a, he is a, is a genius and he's a kind of individualist... Um, you know, he teaches in, in Michigan, and he teaches, uh, he teaches composition, but he also teaches mathematics. And he's also an ordained rabbi. And he also, as he informed me, is a licensed electrician. And the electrician came about because he needed some electrical work done in his house, and, and the electrician who gave him an estimate, he thought, well, that's too much. So he trained himself and got licensed as an electrician. But he, he's he's an amazing guy and very strange one. And um, and he sent, I asked him about this piece, and he said, sure, I'll send you the scores, but I'm revising them now anyway. So let me send you the revised versions when I get them. And so he had two versions of the scores, and we started reading through the stuff, Not easy stuff to play, uh, but amazing music. Let's now listen to a truly wild romp. The entire six minutes of Four Music Videos, Part 4, Samba, by Paul Schoenfeld, performed by the Weiss Kaplan Stumpf Trio. And I dare you not to dance.
setting up the recording, you wrote in an email, quote, that you believe in human society's eventual need for music and for live music, but quite possibly not in the ways we're used to it. If not that, then you ask, what will be the musician's role in the post-pandemic future? You continued, and then I'll let you comment on all that you said, said, right now, what is and what is not possible by means of technology? You asked that question. Uh, and then you said, actually, chamber music is not possible through technology, for example. You can't get the same thing. I guess that's what you meant. And despite everything uh, we can do, it's not possible. Can you elaborate on those statements? Okay. Um, well, let's start from the end. By the way, it's always dangerous when somebody quotes me and I have to take ownership of these words. Well, it's not um, published. It was something who emailed me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as far as chamber music and technology, you can't play together with Zoom. Um, there's problems, and as a physicist, I'll tell you that one of the problems is the speed of light, which which is not infinite. So, we can't actually play with somebody, I'm in New York, I can't play with somebody in California, a duet. Um, the, the things, the timing, uh, the, the degree of timing we need for classical music is close enough that the time it takes for the signal, <clears throat> for the signal to get here is too great. It just doesn't work. Um, what about using a click track? Well, that's not music. I mean, it's not chamber music. Now, there, And there are things better than click track. So I was teaching just a couple of weeks ago at a summer program, an amazing program, called the Heifetz Institute, um, which is not named in honor of Yasha Heifetz and named in honor of Daniel Heifetz, who founded it. And it's, it's a marvelous place. And chamber music is an important part of it, and the students do chamber music. Um, and they did this institute this year and had not only private instruction but they did chamber music in a manner of speaking and what they do what they did which you can do is you can make what are called layered recordings I record my part I send it to you you play with that part and you send it on to the next person and you record you know all this stuff each step of the way and maybe I send you my part and you record it, you play with it and record it, and you say, yes, but I think that actually the, the transition into measure 122 is not very graceful, and so I've made another version of that. Um, and why don't you play with that one? And so you can do that. Um, but it's not the same as playing chamber music. It is actually very educational which is why I was all in favor of it at the Heifetz Institute. And I had some students who said that it was a wonderful experience. It's educational because you really get to know everybody's part in a lot of detail. And you get to know what are the tolerances for being together in a lot of detail. And it's, it's, a, it's a fabulous thing to do. But it's not chamber music. Because chamber music is basically... A social experience and what I was describing before in terms of 
the things that cannot work and the egos involved, that's also part of the social experience. And you can't you can't isolate the social part from the musical part. That conversation so, that happens in real time in the same space, which you're all breathing the same air, uh, right? Same smells around you, whatever. Yeah, and um, what has been done with various platforms that have been developed is people have tried to get closer and closer to the ultimate of what can be done given the speed of light and there I don't know from personal experience but I know a prof professor Epperson and Epperson who teaches also at Indiana University has worked with her pianists in making duo recordings with with string players and she says that there is this thing that's been developed where you can actually play together for people who are no more than about 60 miles apart. Because of the speed of light, because they're closer together. Right. Get closer together physically and electronically. Uh, yeah, but as I said, there is the speed of light. Yeah. So that that leaves a gap, a time gap, that, that you can't work with. I would imagine also it's not as fun. And I'm sure it's not as fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, could, can you make any quick predictions about where we're going to be once the vaccine is here? Are we just going to go back to the concert hall? Are you going to go back to touring? Is it just going to be what it was before it was in February? Um, well, I don't think it will be what it was before for, for many reasons. One of them is that I think, um, well, how to say this? I think that classical music, this is, this is a crisis this pandemic is a crisis which is coming on top of a crisis that already existed. And the crisis that already existed is that, yes, there's lots of classical music around, and yes, in some sense, it's thriving because people could say, I mean, before the pandemic, people could say, okay, look, there are more concerts now than ever before, which, which is true. But there are problems, and part of the problems are that the whole thing has been built up to too great a degree. And I see if I can explain what I mean by that. First of all, at the time that Irving Colodin said I should record his Eye Sonatas, there was maybe one or two recordings of the Eye Sonatas, if that. Um, now, there are probably 40. And that's relatively obscure bit of repertoire. If we say Beethoven Fifth Symphony, there are probably 400 recordings of it. Who needs another? Who needs a performance when, in terms, when we can get the, our choice of, you know, the greatest conductors, the greatest orchestras, not only in the world now, but in the last, you know, century and we can hear Beethoven Fifth Symphony. So, in that sense, the only reason to go to a concert is because of what you said. We're experiencing something that's, that's live, that is social, that we're breathing the same air, and that we don't really know how it's going to turn out. 
and that there there is something in that dynamic that is I think very precious and precious to people um, but I think that this pandemic has caused us to kind of sit back and say do we really need um, the types of concerts we've had big orchestras playing the same stuff that we've heard lots of times that have 500 recordings do we need um, that kind does the orchestra need that kind of glitzy stuff being a professional musician does that mean having you know a six figure salary and um and and you know benefits and and all that it's a real job whereas the background of playing music and when i say people have a need of live music the background is is the town musician who didn't have any kind of a salary at all and maybe got a nice dinner out of it and that people were very thirsty for that. I think I think we need music. Every human society that we know of, dating back before history, has had music of some kind. And I think that, that we I think it's in our DNA that we need it. But exactly what we need is is a big question. Um and do we need again famous people touring the world big salaries big concert fees um do we need to know that this person is the best which is like a, a kind of obsession with us today is um you know is so and so the best pianist um i remember when when i was i used to play a lot in germany and i once stayed with this family and young teenage boy said to me well What's your ranking? And I said, well, you know, there's, there's no ranking. But, I mean, are you in the top 50? Are you in the top 20? Um, you, what do you mean you don't have a computer ranking? Tennis players have a ranking. Um, so do we need that obsession with knowing that we're hearing the best? Is it not good enough to just have our souls nourished with some beautiful music? So I think that because of them living for, it's been half a year now, it's going to be at least a year before we're, even with a vaccine and let's say the vaccine works and all that, it's going to be at least a year before there's anything that could be a semblance of what it was. And I think people are going to ask, is that what we really need? Having lived for a year without it. And I think, you know, very, yes, we will have concerts. Yes, there'll be orchestras. Um, but what kind of orchestras and what kind of concert series and what kind of seasons? I, I think it's, it's a very open question. And I think we may end up with many more of the town musician kind of situations. And and very likely fewer of the big orchestra situations and some things that involve enormous resources like opera then I think maybe even fewer of those but I, I don't know you know I don't have a crystal ball
Mark Kaplan, thank you so much. Um, there was a bit of an essay there on the future. Um, I appreciate it. It was fascinating, fascinating ideas. You said you would suggest something to us that we can go out on. Uh, either something that's true or something that is joyous, something that you've played that you'd like to share with us as we end this Hunker Down episode with you. Well, for me, some of the music which is deepest and most joyful is, is music of Bach. And I think one of the things I suggested to you as a recording excerpt is the final movement of his sonata in C major. And I, I find that just wonderfully joyful in a very, very living way. Many things he wrote that are joyful in um, in a quiet and thoughtful way, but this is this is real jump for joy. And um, yeah. Okay. Mark Kaplan, thank you so much. I am so appreciative of Ralph Schulte to bring you onto my screen and into my program. Uh, delightful meeting you. I would love to sometime buy you a beer uh, <laughs> when the, when the bars open up again and. Hopefully we'll we'll be healthy and, and make that day. I would look forward to that too. Thanks so much and, and uh, a real pleasure to, to speak with speak together and and um, and I'm gonna check out all your podcasts. Well thank you very much. I appreciate that. Always you to use another subscription. Yeah. Okay, take <laughs> okay. care then. Bye bye, take you. care. Right, bye bye. And now the entirety of the Bach Sonata number three, performed by Mark Kaplan. Thank you. 
Thank you. 